Welcome to Season 1, Episode 6 of Grace or Grit, a podcast intended to address difficult, controversial, and debatable issues related to the Bible and the church. Of course, there's no shortage of those topics. I'm your host, Dave Talley. I serve as the lead pastor at Grace Baptist Church here in Herlock, Maryland, and along with me today is my co-host, Pastor Patrick Reed. He's a pre-field missionary with ABWE on deputation trying to get to the Gambia in Africa. And uh, joining us today for our discussion is a gentleman who I met a number of years ago. He serves as a church planting missionary with Continental Baptist Mission, Pastor Jeff Manier. So Jeff, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? The church over in Bowie, Maryland is Shiloh Baptist Church. And uh, you're trying to start a multicultural ministry, is that right? It is. Bowie as a city has got somewhere near 60,000 people in it. The demographics, we've got around 56% African-American population, about 34% Anglo population. Um, The stats say only about 4% Latino, Hispanic, but I see many, many more Latinos than come up in the figures. So they may live just outside, but work and serve in Bowie. Our goal is definitely multi-ethnic because that's what our town is. Uh, Just for our listeners sake, he said he's got, uh, Jeff said, you've got what, 50%, what'd you say, uh, of uh, black Americans there in Bowie? Is that what you said? 56%. And here in Herlock, I don't remember, I haven't looked recently, but it's 40% or something like that. Uh, of course, Patrick's going to the Gambia. What's, what's the percentage of, uh, of the black population in, in the Gambia? Well, I guess once we get there, it'll drop by 0.001 or something, <laughs> but it's uh, probably 90, 99.9 or something, I would assume. Sure. So I just wanted to uh, acknowledge you know, what's going on in our world right now and recognize that uh, all of us, it's not a political problem. It's not just a social problem. Uh, It's something that we three lily white American men want to address. Our hearts are in this thing. I certainly have been striving for years to cross some barriers and build some bridges. And I've failed many times and I, I take all the responsibility and blame for that. But the problem between the ethnic groups that exists throughout the world and has existed throughout history is not a secular problem. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a spiritual problem, and uh, the church has the answers. And uh, so I just want to acknowledge that as we get into this. I didn't even ask you how you're doing, Patrick. Things are going well here. Yep, uh, everything's moving along, watching things open back up slowly. So, you know, we're definitely enjoying that. My wife and I finally went to a restaurant this week. Uh, we ate outside, but uh, it's been, been a while. Trying, trying to get back to normal. Well, let's jump right in here. The topic of uh, our meditation today, or our discussion, secular versus sacred, to me comes from Ezekiel 44, verse 23. They shall teach my people the difference between the holy and profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. Um, 
there is so much in the Bible about things being consecrated or dedicated or sanctified, etc. And yet, I certainly readily admit that all of life should be an act of worship. And I think as I wrestle with this topic and as we joint, jump into it, if I could give maybe a story or two to, to get us rolling, I'm thinking of our listeners and trying to put myself in their day-to-day struggles. How do we balance life? I have my responsibilities. I have my needs that I think of with job and family and just the material things of life. And I have my spiritual hungers and my spiritual appetites. And I believe many times Christians feel tension and there's this struggle between this attempt to balance. And uh, so that's what I'm hoping to give some answers to. Um, I remember witnessing to a gentleman years ago, his name was Donnie. And he said, oh, I don't need to come to church. I can just go worship out in the pine thicket by myself. And so, you know, trying to wrestle with that question with this guy who, who had a, his own invented theology, you know, I had, to, I had to evaluate, well, why is that not okay? Why is that not enough? Or is that enough? You know, I remember hearing a pastor tell about going out and witnessing and winning someone to Christ. But he said, before that, I sat down and played um, Rook or Uno or something, I don't know what it was, with my wife. And he asked the question, you know, which one was holy? Which one was godly? Which one, which one was superior? Which one was more important? And his, uh, you know, position was that they were both equally important, uh, which as a young man, I was very young when I heard him give that presentation. I was, I was quite shocked by that. But what do you make of this, uh, this concept of some things being holy and some things being profane in the scriptures or common, you might say? Is there such thing as something being good, not evil, but not sacred? To me, no. First Corinthians six nineteen through 20. What know ye not that ye are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwelleth in thee? You are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So for me, the moment you trust Christ as Savior, God delights and desires to be a part of absolutely everything you do. And going along with the fellow who said playing a game with his wife was just as important as going out soul winning, it is God's command for us to rest and recreate it is God's command for us to go out and share Christ and win people to Christ. So for me, um, there is no separation. And I'd love to get into possibilities of why that's in our culture and in our Christian church mindset. But there is no part of my life that God does not want to be totally involved in. So why then, if I could play a little devil's advocate, I certainly agree with you, but why then do we have, for example, six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is a day of rest. It's holy unto the Lord. Uh, why do we have this separation? This day, I mean, it seems like there's a difference. You got six days that run like this, 
and then another day that runs like that, the direction of those days, at least at face value initially, doesn't look equal. A knee-jerk response to that on the possibility, and we're guessing, on why God may have done that. Humans after the fall will push themselves seven days a week, 365 days a year to get ahead. God demanded that we take time to focus on him to remind ourselves that productivity, gaining wealth is not the goal of life. And that if we did not have to slow down and rethink about why I'm doing what I'm doing, I would go down the wrong bunny trails daily. So in other words, uh, kind of as a reminder uh, that we have to live by faith. Is that, is that the point? It is definitely part of the point. The, the illustration of Elisha after killing all of the prophets on the mountain and he gets one threat from Jezebel and he runs off scared. I'm the only one left. He's going for days without food. He's going for days without sleep. And the first thing God does is feed him and make him go to sleep for a while. And then God gives him a job. We, we are not angels. We must rest. We must eat properly. We must sleep. We must rest and recreate. And so God demanding that we slow down and take care of ourselves is because we're not smart enough to do it. Right. Now, you do have to balance that whole idea with the Apostle Paul as he's wrestling through Galatians, other pieces of the New Testament. One, one guy thinks there are certain days that are holy. Another guy thinks every day is holy. And so in the New Testament, to me, there's an open-ended question as to whether there is one particular holy day or whether every day now is absolutely holy, whether I'm resting or working, it's all for Jesus. Well, definitely in Hebrews, we read, we have entered into his rest. Amen. Um, which to me is the step up from the seventh day of rest. Uh, now we rest in him in every moment. Uh, I definitely agree with that. Patrick comes from uh, a secular background, both being an atheist and having a secular job as a businessman. And now your life is full of ministry. You're a full-time Christian worker, worker or workle, whatever that is. Uh, you might be a workle. Um, you know, you're you're uh, you're a missionary now. You know, so what's the difference? What has changed? Those don't seem equal. What you were doing, definitely the atheist part. We know that part, but you know what you were doing, running a wood shop, and now going to the Gambia. To me, those don't seem like equal things. Well, I guess in a way you could say they're 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 obviously different from one perspective. You know, uh, it's a it's a different work that's being accomplished, but that doesn't mean, you know, when I was uh, director of manufacturing for a conservatory company, that I wasn't doing God's work at that time, just like I'm doing God's work now. Um, so I think from that perspective, they're the same. It may be different work. Um, but only different to a degree, different in maybe how um, how to accomplish the work. Um, how to bring people to Christ may be a different way uh, through full-time ministry versus ministry through a secular job. So, I, I mean, I see those the same because I guess I look at 
1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Um, So I think to me that's saying everything that I do is for God's glory, uh, whether it be, you know, managing people in a company um, or whether it be uh, a missionary to the Wolof people in the Gambia. It's uh, it's still doing all those things for God's glory. At least it should be. That's what I should be doing. It doesn't necessarily mean that's what I was doing all the time because maybe I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing all the time. Maybe I wasn't listening to God or wasn't following him as closely as I should have been uh, when he put me in certain circumstances. Um, but that's what I should have been doing in those circumstances all the time. And so I think... God's work is accomplished through many, many different things. And that's why I think you see a lot of missions now. You see business uh, missions for business and, you know, lots of different places around the world where traditional missionaries can't even get into certain countries because they are, um, you know, banned. The government doesn't allow missionary visas and such. And even in the Gambia, it's like that. The Gambia doesn't allow missionary visas. And so, my role for the government is that uh, I'll be the <clears throat> I'll be uh, basically overseeing there or what they call the, the missions director for ABW's medical clinic there. And so uh, other places, you know, I know there we know folks that are going to places like Iran or um, north places in North Africa where, you know, they're coming in as uh, someone who's going to operate a business there or, or work within businesses there. And those are all opportunities to do God's work through what we might classify as being secular jobs. Um, but I don't think God necessarily <laughs> categorizes it that way. And so I don't necessarily see a difference from the aspect of doing God's work. Now, how I get paid might be different, but, uh, you know, I, I don't think that matters either. So. I've spent nearly 40 years in ministry trying to communicate what Patrick just said. God wants every one of us full-time ministry. There should be no change in my life when God calls me to be a missionary except where I get my paycheck. I should have been having the same devotions. I should be praying for the lost. I should be living, doing everything for the glory of God. An opinion as I tried to research and come up with where in the world did we even get the idea of a difference between sacred and secular is Catholicism, not the Bible, because every vocation was holy in the Old Testament. There were particular articles set aside for temple worship, and I I really appreciate, Pastor Dave, your difference in changing the word profane to common. Because profane in our language has a very definite nasty tinge. There was common, and then there was super set apart for God. But in Christ, it re-emphasizes the whole, the Greek idea that material things, our bodies are tainted. We won't be really pure and holy until we're separated from the body. That's a Greek idea. That has nothing to do with the Bible and God's people. God is inherently material. God commanded us to work and produce. So work is a holy thing. And so everything Patrick just said, I'm serving God full time. Wherever I get my paycheck, I'm a missionary there. So did you say godliness is inherently material? 
Material is inherently good. Material is inherently good because God made it. Yes, sir. That's what you said. Okay. That is uh, what I intended to say. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I absolutely, I absolutely agree. So, but let me ask you this question. Do you believe that most Christians that you have encountered do categorize life as sacred, secular, and sinful? Yeah, I, you'd mentioned that before we started, and I fear that's where we are. In my Bible college and seminary, there was a discussion, uh, uh, terminology, folk, theology, that we spend a great deal of our ministry time dismantling things that run through congregational level everyday life that are just totally unbiblical. Yeah, like suicide's the unpardonable sin. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I'm the lone pastor in my extended family, and they asked me to come do a funeral for my aunt who committed suicide. And so we got to walk right into that. Again, that's a Catholic concept. I think there's other categories besides just that. Maybe there's subcategories. I'm not sure, or they're, maybe they're almost separate categories. But I know that, at least in American culture, American Christians, we also tend to separate family and we separate work, as though there's distinctions between those two. There's a seems to be a distinction. Well, this is my family time when I get home at you know six o'clock or five o'clock or seven o'clock or whatever it is, and then the other time is my work time, and those two times have to be separate, and I can't work when I'm in family time and I can't have family time when I'm at work. Um, and we seem to naturally separate those two. And then we kind of throw in another separation. Well, Sundays is church time, you know, and that's in the morning. And then family time is after that. And that's different than church time. And so we seem to segregate, at least I certainly did. And so I just assume that a lot of other people did as well. Um, this uh, are really our week down almost by then the hour of which category that fits into. Yes. So let's just jump right to the conclusion, although I've got a lot more that we're going to talk about. Of him and through him and to him are all things. That's what we read in the scriptures, right? Amen. And so when I look at family, God instituted the family. So my mindset should always be, God is here with us. What is his will? What is his way? What is his purpose? What is he trying to do? How can I cooperate with his spirit right, right now as I'm, I'm going to borrow from Jeff's email that he sent me, as I'm having sex with my wife, how can I yield to the Holy Spirit? As I'm washing dishes, as I'm mowing the yard, as I'm fixing the lawnmower, as we're painting the living room, so we got family, God instituted that. Government, God instituted that. The policeman is a minister of God, carrying the sword for a reason. God instituted government. God gave me my life as an individual. I don't have to talk about the church. We all know God's in charge of the church. But that mindset, when I'm out, look, I love to garden. I mean, I, I can't tell you how much I love walking barefoot through freshly plowed dirt. It, it almost makes me weep. I have so much joy in those moments. But it's not just nostalgia. And look, I'm a sinful creature, dude. I wrestle with temptation constantly, like everybody else. I assume everybody else is as bad as I am. Maybe not. Maybe I'm the worst. But, but still, as I'm, I planted four tomato plants, I'm, I'm 
in awe at the wisdom of God who created this stuff and that constant awareness which drives us to live every moment as an act of worship is the goal. I assume that's the conclusion that all of us want to push for today. Don't let somebody convince you that you're at work. You have to go through the drudgery of work so that you can make enough money to take care of your family. And so you can survive to the weekend and come to church and oh, finally I can worship God. No, the scripture gives very specific instructions for how to interact with your boss, right? And not, not just, now I'm going to give a gospel track. Ooh, that was an act of worship. You know, ooh, that was sacred. No, solving the problem of how to fix this dumb engine that won't work. God is equally involved in that. And Jeff, I'm so glad you brought up, and I know I'm preaching now rather than discussing, but I'm so glad you brought out the Old Testament where those guys were filled with the spirit to sow, mm-hmm. you know, when they were making the, the tabernacle. They were, they were filled with this spirit, empowered and given wisdom so they could pound on gold. Yes. Make it a certain shape. Yes. Exactly. I so pre- we do want our people to say it's either sacred or sinful. Am I right? Absolutely. It's obedient or disobedient. It's not sacred or secular. And Patrick um, felt wisely that we've got competing demands on our life. And that I think is what drives, this is my family time. If I don't push out the work world that it wants to come home with me, if I don't focus and give my children my time right now, everything will steal it from them. And so we've got competing demands. But I, along with what both of you are saying, I think there's this constant need and, and we as shepherds who are equipping the, the body to do the work of the ministry is to continually show them how to bring God into each of these competing worlds so that we are serving Christ and, and being a joy to others as Christ in action, the body of Christ, in every one of these competing demands. Well, maybe we can discuss for a moment because this just brings up um, on the work work side of things. Uh, those who are in secular jobs, I remember that there is a substantial pressure, uh, particularly within a lot of companies, um, to separate God out of you know their workplace. Uh, in fact, a lot of times it's frowned upon or even completely prohibited to discuss God or share your faith or things of that nature. So maybe if you two, either one of you want to comment on that is how should people deal with that if they're in secular work where they're facing that type of pressure that, you know, it's not encouraged to talk to one another about religious issues or faith or things of that nature that they, the, the place they work for, their bosses are saying, no, don't do that sort of thing. What should they do? My knee-jerk reaction is obey the boss as far as possible because he's not paying you to witness. That does not mean witnessing can't and won't happen because if you're building the best relationship possible with coworkers, invite them out to coffee. Invite them over to spend time with your family, bring their family over. Use that time building enough relationship that when you're not being paid for your time together, then you can get the gospel all the way open because you've built respect, you've built trust, you've built enough relationship that they may be ready to listen. Um, Tension point, 
if everyone knows in the office you can spend 20 minutes a day talking about football, then don't yell at me for spending 10 minutes explaining why I was at church Sunday morning. <laughs> if you can legitimately show that everyone around here is allowed to do thus and so for 20 minutes a day, don't yell at me for 10 minutes. Carefully, you can show them where they're not being consistent. But you walk into a job with your chip on the shoulder that I'm going to witness anytime I want, they're going to fire you and they should. So that's at least as I've had to shepherd people through this very issue, the direction I would head them. Yeah, relationship that you mentioned is huge. It is. We're following Christ. We've got to be building relationships everywhere we go, sincerely, not just as salesmen, but sincerely caring for people with no expiration date. You know, that would be the obvious thing. And, and secondly, you know, obeying scriptural principles The if you're being the best worker, the boss has, he ain't going to care what you're talking about. For the most part, there'll be exceptions where the devil get in there and mess things up. But, you know, we are to be bright and shining lights. If we're full of joy and we don't have a filthy mouth and we're the hardest worker around and those kinds of things that should open doors for us to be a witness. Uh, And so therefore, Sweeping the floor better than anybody ever swept it becomes a, 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 a holy act that you would expect to be rewarded for when you stand before the Savior. Amen. I and a number of Christians who were in Bible college worked in a foundry, dirty, rough, lowest level of, of uh, socioeconomic backgrounds working with us. And... Um, our one section of the foundry closed down, so we all had to go to the worst section of the foundry for the next four hours. All of us from Bible college, the Christians, are laughing and singing on our way to the pit. And the rest of the guys turned and looked at us like, you came out of there. That's where everyone starts. You finally get up in the good end of the shop, and you're singing when you go back. What is wrong with you people? <laughs> and a God gave a light bulb moment. Oh, you thought we worked for the foundry. You misunderstood. We work for Christ. It's just where Christ sends us in the foundry. Yeah. They still thought we were a bit loopy, but our, our joy is not connected to how difficult the work is. As unto the Lord, not unto men. Amen. So this brings up uh, an issue with, if you're going to talk about the common concept of, you, know, you have political issues, you have the government, you've got the public forum, you know, you got all that category over there. And then you got the church. And of course, the church is supposed to stick to theology and, you know, giving people uh, things when they're needy. That's what the church does. So here's a question. What topic, what issue is out of bounds for the pastor standing in front of the pulpit? What issue is he not authorized to address? Wow. That's legitimately connected, but you want to talk about a bunny trail. Um, Does he want to lose the ability to continue to share the gospel with everybody he's built relationships with? Mm. I cannot admit what political party I back in my town. Uh I, I cannot get anywhere near a political discussion without losing my ability to witness. It's just... Part of my being able to get enough relationship is not allowing what is for my calling peripheral concerns 
I can grieve with them. I can listen to them. I just have to be very, very shrewd on what I bother to say if I'm going to keep a relationship going where I could get to spiritual things. So that's part of becoming all things to all men that we might by all means save some, right? I think so. So you could, you would have a legitimate biblical reason to address any issue perhaps, Mm -hmm. but all things are not profitable. (laughs) That's the exact verse I was thinking of is, you know, while all things may be permissible for the pastor to say, uh, not necessarily all things are profitable. And I think it depends on the circumstances as well. So I don't think we could just blanketly say, well, pastors shouldn't say this or shouldn't say that. I think it depends. You know, what Jeff may say may not be, may be a good thing or may not for what you may say. And it probably depends on the audience who's listening. And that last statement from Patrick, our five years here has been so much more research into understanding the other subcultures in America. When I live in an area that is 90% Anglo, I, I don't have to think about everything I say hitting people who have felt stepped on and squished for hundreds of years. But now where I live and I read African-Americans write articles about when their pastor said, now when you vote, remember to vote pro-life and vote this and vote that because it's your Christian conscience. And then the African-American let me hear the way they processed everything they just heard. I need a lot more wisdom on what comes out of my mouth that would get anywhere near political if I'm going to be heard in their heart with what I actually wanted to say. And so much grace and much wisdom needs to be applied in just what Patrick's verse said. When I can handle God's word, this is truth. But I step into politics, it's what I think is best based on the truth. And as one brother down in South Carolina, maybe North Carolina, Durham, he said, I might be wrong about my politics. I am not wrong about the gospel. And I don't want to shoot my opportunity to give the gospel because of what I said about my politics. Hmm. So that's where I have to land. I was just rebuked uh, last week um, pretty soundly on social media. Where else would we be rebuked, right? Um, By a young man who grew up in our church, and he's now an adult, and he's in the military. And he basically addressed this issue. He's like, and I'm going to interpret it for you because it was long and very emotional. But he was basically like, if I'm not a relatively affluent, at least lower middle class, uh, white, conservative, Republican, pro-life, straight American, I'm not going to fit in your church. And there's no way you're going to communicate with me in any way where I will listen. He grew up in our church. He was here from the time he was like five years old. And it doesn't matter to me. It matters to me where he's coming from. That's that doesn't sound right. He may or may not be in a good position. We'll say it that way as far as where he stands. Sure. But his observation is legitimate. Mm -hmm. Um, So at at that point, we're, we're basically saying there is a compartmentalization that has to happen on a practical level 
on some issues, even though all issues are still under the umbrella of God's authority, jurisdiction, and purpose. So there are priorities, and then there are higher priorities. And sometimes, sometimes we have to leave the good alone in order to address the better as pastors. How many hoops do they have to jump through to feel comfortable enough to listen to us? Yeah. And if we really want people to be able to walk in in ratty blue jeans and a t-shirt and say, here I am, what do you have to say? Are we ministering the love of God to where their heart is? Sure. The Holy Spirit can certainly fix all of their politics. If they are determined, I'm going to love my neighbor the absolute best I can, and I'm going to love God. So we got to recognize that the journey of sanctification, I assume you, you both believe that there is a journey of sanctification, right? Progressive. Sure. That journey of sanctification, we have to allow the Holy Spirit to do his work, his way, in his timing with people. And he may use us. Most likely he will at times. But he doesn't have to use us. Uh, and this, to me, is part of this secular versus sacred issue that when a person gets saved, though they now wholly belong to God, principally speaking, none of us wholly belong to God, practically speaking. We're always um, wrestling with surrendering areas to God. So earlier on in my ministry, I would get so... I'll just say hi. I've never actually been hi, but uh, I shouldn't say things like that. That's one of those things that I shouldn't say because it doesn't help. All it does is distance, distance me from people. But I'm not bragging. I'm just confessing, actually, that I was, I don't know, I was scared of getting drunk and scared of drugs and all that. So anyway, but I, I would get so high on Saturday night, I couldn't sleep getting ready for Sunday. And Sunday, I was so pumped up. You know, I'm with God's people and I'm preaching God's word. And, and I have no doubt that much of it was the work of the Spirit and was my love for Christ. But a lot of it was also just adrenaline. And, you know, I'm a young man with these great opportunities. And I can't believe these people are sitting there listening to me or whatever else. But then Sunday night, oh, my land, you're talking about a crash, a hangover, you know, a withdrawal. <laughs> And I was like ready to commit suicide every Sunday night. It wasn't quite that bad, but sometimes it got really rough. And there really was an unawareness, number one, but there was a compartmentalization where I had the sacred thing going on. And then I was like, oh, now I'm done with that. Now what do I do? And it was, it was, it was part of that sanctification journey. There was so much of my ministry even that I, was, I wasn't in rebellion knowingly against God. I just hadn't grasped, even though I grew up in a preacher's home, I hadn't grasped the reality of every moment being sacred. And that time at home Sunday night, you know, just fixing sandwiches when the fa with the family, being equal to me standing up Sunday morning saying, Thus saith the Lord, you know. The adrenaline is real, and, and we have to watch what that does to our bodies because it takes a lot out to be the front communicator trying to move a whole congregation emotionally and spiritually a certain direction. And so I think all of us who speak have experienced that excited. Um, I, through my ministry years, have not been so pumped and excited. 
I was so nervous and scared I couldn't eat breakfast. But the crash was the same. And I'm sure that's just a personality, you know, difference. God gives us each unique perspectives in that way. Um, on the secular sacred, is I would work to dismantle unneeded hurdles that keep people from welcoming Christ into absolutely every piece of their life. One of the things I keep having to run into is to try to help people relax their black and white thinking. Anytime we would say, I am absolutely all committed to God, it, it's way too slippery for that. Am I choosing to keep my eyes on Christ this morning? Am I choosing this afternoon? Am I choosing this evening? Because our hearts drift. And so real spiritual life is constantly bringing, because all of around us, the flesh, the world, the devil, everything is trying to get us to drift away. And so it, it is just a gentle but constant course correction. And black and white thinking notes of battles I've had through my years. Well, you're asking to be uh, accepted here as a missionary with this mission agency. What do you think of secular entertainment? I had a chip on my shoulder and I wrote right on the application form, can you name one Christian game that wasn't designed by unsafe people? I almost didn't get to be a missionary with the mission agency because that day I had a chip on my shoulder. It's not a black and white world. I'm constantly having to bring Christ back into my focus. Um, I would like to think I'm sold out 70% to Christ today, but my wife's building a website and, and computers are not her thing. And, 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 and we're back to Patrick's competing demands on our life. So one of the things I regularly try to crack is I'm not all right or all wrong. The Pharisees worked very hard they developed these 614 rules that if you would obey these 614 rules, you'll never disobey the Bible. That was their reality. And by the time Christ comes along, you can obey all 614 and totally disobey the Bible. Yeah. They did not believe that you and I were spiritually responsible to take what we knew of God and apply it to my context to live for him. And so Jesus looks at this unsaved centurion who did just that. I'm a man under authority. You've got authority. You don't have to become unclean coming under my roof. Say the word. And Jesus said, I haven't seen this kind of faith in all Israel. What God wants is us to take what we know of God, take our problem, and put the two of them together. That's not black and white thinking. That is a humble seeking Christ. And so... That is just another direction I would constantly, we don't have to live under the secular sacred that's a black and white paradigm. Yeah, and that's grace. You just described grace. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so for the folks that listen to the sermons and are evaluating their lives, what do you recommend? Do they evaluate their life since they believed until now? Do they evaluate their trajectory, the whole thing? Do they evaluate this moment? I have a position. What do you say to them? What do you do there? Is it all of the above? Here's, what, here's what's happened. I've preached messages, and people come to me with a response that I can tell is them evaluating their entire life as a whole. Yes. 
when I'm not addressing that. I'm trying to address where are you right now? Never mind where you've been. Never mind what baggage you anticipate you're going to have tomorrow. Does God have your full devotion, your full attention, your full loyalty, as best you know how in this moment? Even confessing, my repentance is probably too shallow, right? Uh, but as best I know how, there's nothing between he and I at the moment. Is it one or the other? Is it both? I do appreciate the realization that we have many foundation stones that we don't think about, but they are there in all of our decision-making, and we build on them. And they just heard the word of God, which said three of their foundation stones need to get totally pulled out and removed so they think right for the future. So when they're trying to say, good grief, I need to reshuffle my whole life, they are correct. And you are correct. The best way to reshuffle your whole life is a simple heart submission right now. The Lord Jesus, take and reshuffle it. I, I'm not sure how much shockwave damage that's going to do, but I'm here, Lord, and I want you to reshuffle it. Because if those two things down here I, I've depended on for so many years are wrong, the truth will set me free. Get them out of there somehow, Lord. It, it is a both and. And I guess that's what I'd have to say. You're realizing there are shockwaves that go all the way through, but the best way to handle that is just right now, fix your eyes on Christ. And gently, slowly, day by day, and write out lists. Have I thought through where Christ is in the way I sleep? Have I thought through where Christ is in my music, in my entertainment reading? It, have I really let Christ into every piece of my life? And I don't have to be all there yet today. Right. We're, we're in this journey, but I can piece up. And of course, I get three in and I got to go back to number one again. Yeah. That, that's just who we are, but we can move forward. And we can do it with great joy. I don't have to beat myself up on how far short I am. That's just not productive. And I think you just described walking by faith. Um, I do think there is a there are unique temptations associated with the two different focuses. I think when people focus on their entire life, they get exasperated and give up real quick. Or they can be filled with pride because they compare their life to somebody else's. Um, I think also when you focus on the moment, uh, there, there, it does tend more towards a humility and that dependence upon God in every tiny little moment. But at the same time, you can forget that, hey, there's some big issues, some big sticky issues that's been going on a long time that I need to be dealing with. And I can't just say, oh, I feel good right now, so we'll just forget about all the crap that's been going on that probably is going to show up again tomorrow. I think there are temptations in both cases. What do you think, Patrick? Well, I think I think Jesus speaks to this, so I'm going to paraphrase. If anybody who knows me knows I like to do that a lot, I just kind of reword the scriptures into my own language, and that's the way I remember it. But and Jesus said, um, you know, worry about today. There's too many other problems. Don't worry about tomorrow's problems. Worry about today. That's enough problems for you to deal with. Focusing on all the problems that are going to come tomorrow, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Anyways, so worry about today. And I think that principle still applies, you know, as we're, 
We're looking at our own life. You know, worry about where you are right now. You're not going to control the things that happen tomorrow anyways. So worry about what you can do in the moment, at the moment, um, because otherwise I think you're just going to cause yourself anxiety. It doesn't mean we shouldn't learn from the past. You know, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't uh, correct mistakes that we've made that we can see that we've made. But I think if we were to, you know, just focus on, if we were to constantly focus on this whole period of time or focus on, well, how have I lived my life this whole period of time? We, we can't change any of those things anyways. Uh, we can't change what happened in the past. Now we can focus right now and not do the same thing that we did if that was bad or continue doing what we're doing if it's good. But I think that principle is just kind of broader is the way I see it and worry about right now. You know, I love that word focus. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. I'm God. There's nothing else looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Uh, focus. If our, if he, if our eyes are on him, focus. That's, I love that word. Right. Pastor Jeff. Totally with what Patrick just said. Um, C.S. Lewis did a fabulous development and I'm not remembering which of his books, but everything Patrick just said, C.S. Lewis breaks out the devil and our flesh would love to get us moaning over past failures or, or worrying about the future. And all God gave you was today. Now, if my responsibility for today is to prepare for what I know is going to happen tomorrow, then that's still today. But everything Patrick just said, um, yeah, it, that is so clean and simple, but so there. And if you didn't have the reference right at the tip of your tongue, it was Matthew um, 6.34, right after Seek ye first. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will have enough problems of its own. <laughs> So, amen and amen. Uh, let's wrap up with this final issue. And what do we do when the quote unquote secular world starts influencing the church, influencing the church rather than the church influencing the world? It, it definitely happens. We, we, we take our cues from someplace. Somebody's taking their, their lead from somewhere. And the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. So we are supposed to be leading, whether it's talking about racial inequality, whether it's talking, whether you're talking about, you know, uh, the fears that arise because of diseases, just trying to pick up the last two big issues. You know, the church is supposed to be taking the lead. Um, so what do you do when you clearly see, man, it's like the church is in lockstep with the world and just following all their philosophies. Um, is, is there a balance? Is there an approach that we need to take there? We can't separate ourselves from the world completely. Jesus even prayed, was it John 17? Father, I'm not saying take them out of the world, just keep them from evil. You know, and he, send us, he sends us into all the world. So I believe this is also part of the secular versus sacred issue, uh, the strategies of the church. Yeah, I think where I see this happening or maybe one of the reasons why it tends to happen is, and I don't necessarily disagree with this approach, but a lot of churches will take the approach of um, uh, in order to attract, you know, people so that they can give the gospel, they, they tend to, they will bring in more worldly things in order to make their, 
church services so that they are um, uh, attractional. They attract people from the world to come in so that they can give the gospel. And I think what happens is, and I, I don't necessarily think there's something completely wrong with doing that. What I think is wrong is what happens is sometimes they start to do that, and then they start to make that um, – they start to, it seems like they bring in the culture of the world and then they, there's a change that starts to happen. And then they start to, that culture starts to become part of who they are. And then the next thing you know, it's almost like there's this confusion where they, they can't realize where, who am I supposed to be and who is the world. And it's almost like over periods of time, I think this occurs. And I think that they're doing it for good reasons initially. And then it, it starts to turn into something that, you know, decisions start getting made. They're like, oh, well, you know, if we got to make this decision, because if we don't make this decision, then we won't keep bringing in lost people into our church. You know, if we if we make this decision, even though it lines up with the Bible and this we feel like God might be having us go in this direction, that might offend some people. And we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to find take any chance of anybody not coming into um, our church, then the lines start getting very blurred. And so I'll just give one example I can think of that's, hap- that's happened recently um, or could happen. And I'm not saying what the reasons were behind it, but uh, when we looked at this pandemic and we looked at um, the world and the fear that was in the world, uh, I think a lot of Christians, and rightfully so, they looked at it and said, well, we don't want to necessarily open up our churches, even if we're able to, because there's the possibility that um, other people are going to look at this. The world's going to look at it and say, oh, you're not being careful. You're not being caring. You're, you're, you're being this or that, um, even though God tells us that I think we should assemble. And so there's, of course, differences you know, as, as we look at that, but I think the lines can get very blurry. We could potentially go, oh, well, we we definitely shouldn't meet because the world's telling us we shouldn't meet or we should meet because God's telling us to meet. Um, and we can start blurring the lines between, I guess, uh, blurring the lines between worrying about what the rest of the world thinks about us. And there's legitimate reasons to care about that so that we don't destroy our testimony for sure. Um, but there's also uh, legitimate reasons to do what God says and not to fear man either. And so there's a balance between those things. And I just think you can see that when we start trying to, for good purposes, trying to reach the lost. We need to be in the world to reach the lost, but then we can start blurring the lines if we're not careful. Pastor Jeff, how about it? Uh, relevance or holiness? Uh, what's your strategy there trying to start a church in Bowie? <laughs> Among the aggressive uh, evangelistic Baptists in the North, we ran into a regular phrase, what draws them keeps them. So if I'm going to do some crazy thing to try to mesh, and I'm going to use that as my drawing card, that's the only way I'll keep them coming back. And with very short amount of thinking, that just ended up eliminating a whole lot of things because on a heart level, none of that other stuff that was glitzy and might get them to visit once is what we're really going to be about. So we're going to show the love of Christ as clearly, directly, and with as much joy and fun as we possibly can, but realize that 
what happens teaches. Right. What I bring in, I approve. And so as leaders, don't cause more confusion. With all of this, there's a great place for what used to be called nuthetic biblical counseling, and now they just call it biblical counseling. We all have idols of the heart. And so when 30 and then 40 and 50% of my church family is being infected by an idea that there is an idol that's being accepted as okay, the regular ministry of the word has got to be addressing, hey, everyone, watch out for this idea. Augustine would say, slay errors, love people. And that's, that's been really, really hard for me because very often the error was attached to a strong personality in the body. Mm-hmm. So how to say, let's look at this text. Let's look. Now, folks, we're hearing this idea. This is bad. This is wrong. This is going the wrong direction. If you say out loud, no, I'm not talking about so-and-so. Everyone already knew that it's attached to them the moment you said, look at the Bible, this is wrong. But we've got to directly address the issues where we see our body heading. Years ago, the Da Vinci Code came out, movies, lots of people. So I came to my deacons and I said, hey, um, do you think I should address any of this? And they looked at each other and they looked back at me. I don't think anybody in the church has read the book. Fine, not an issue. But I was just trying to be culturally sensitive to things that could be as we're supposed to shepherd and protect our flock. So I think keeping the idea of idols of the heart, getting that to where it's language among our church people so that we can then say, all right, we're coming into a political season. Here are five to seven top idols of the heart that could get us fighting amongst one another. So just watch out for these guys. Um, Pastor Dave, as you open this up, there's been a, a historic, scary, scary thing that whatever the world has accepted in music as sexual interaction is, is what could be on television. The Christians tend to accept it 35 years later. Right. We know historically that kind of thing is always happening. And so we know it's just a living battle in the ministry. And my heart aches when you start out and say, well, the church is, gonna, is supposed to be the voice of the truth. Maybe it was in the mid-70s when I got saved. I haven't seen the church lead the culture my whole Christian life. And so spinning around to one last direct touch point, one of the things God has been pounding on me the last three to five years here is how many times in the Bible I'm commanded to do good, parallel and separate from evangelism. Me and my people are just flat supposed to be engaged with this community, loving on people. You want to change the world, help more people. Don't sit in church and bemoan how the world's going. Amen. If we want to have a direct impact, how many unsafe friends do I have? When all these studies show we Christians lost all our unsaved friends within six months of being saved. And so unless we turn around and engage this community by finding ways to do good, I don't believe we'll have any meaningful impact with the light. Amen. 
Well, I think that's a good place to end this on. The next uh, individual that we see come to Christ, maybe the first conversation we have with them after perhaps, uh, you know, something on eternal security and baptism, church membership, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but the next conversation, or maybe it should precede those, is, hey, listen, the friendships that you have right now, they are the most sacred thing you've got. Hold on to them. I know you're going to want to separate those uncomfortable uh, bonds and uh, just come be like the rest of us. <clears throat> but if we all do that every time, we're never going to reach the world for Christ. So hang on to those relationships. Uh, be patient. They're, they're probably going to start distancing, distancing themselves from you. Make it be their choice. Don't, you know, don't let it be your choice because those relationships are not as sacred. They, they are sacred. It's, I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm struggling for words here. It's not like they're, you know, you got all this sacred stuff here. And well, we probably need that too, just for functionality. No, it's, it's on an equal plane. Uh, Jesus was a friend of sinners. Oh, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to Grace of Grit. Thank you, Pastor Jeff Manier and Pastor Patrick Reed for spending time with me today. I'm Dave Talley, and I pray for God's richest blessings on you both, as well as on all of our listeners, as we continue to serve the Lord together. Amen.